Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. ETFs used to mirror the market. Now they are the market. Joining me today is Tamas Calderwood, Distribution Specialist at eInvest. G'day, Tamas. How's it going? G'day, Phil. Thanks for having me on. He recently wrote an article that covered Tesla and its effects on the index, the S&P 500, which led to another article called The Soft Dictatorship of the Index. I love that name. (laughs) Very poetic. So you're a distribution specialist at eInvest ETF providers. What's that involve? That's right. Well, essentially, it's being a salesperson. So uh, my job is to go out and uh, put our funds in front of financial advisors so that they can use those funds for their clients in their clients' portfolios. Yeah. So, so what, sales. what do you do every day when you turn on the computer? What's the first thing you do? Oh, you know, like everyone, check emails, I suppose. Uh, and uh, a lot of work is done via email. That's how we get in front of a lot of people, but also phone calls. So, you know, follow up with phone calls to make sure people are seeing the information, checking whether they need anything else. Uh, and, you know, a lot of cold calling as well, going out and calling people for the first time and uh, what's, introducing ourselves. What's, what's the financial planning industry like? I mean, I know there's a lot of people who think of, you know, the local financial planner that they might meet at the local association or at the pool with their kids. Is that where you're targeting or are there other... I guess they're called distribution channels in the Yeah, um, I mean, we look, we, uh, we have stockbrokers as well uh, that we talk to, but financial advisors, I mean, it's an industry that has gone through a lot of turmoil lately, uh, of course, because of the Royal Commission. The banks have all pretty much got out of that business. And so a lot of them are becoming a lot more independent. Uh, and there's a lot of very you know high-quality advisors out there. Uh, I guess what's been happening is they're trying to weed out the ones that shouldn't be in the business, the, you know, those that haven't performed well and haven't put their customer first. And you know, I think we saw a lot of that with some of the scandals about fees for no service and so on. But the industry itself, I think, is a lot cleaner now. But it has contracted somewhat. There are less advisors in the market these days. And there seems to have been a generational change as well. Mm, I think so. And a newer generation of um, financial yeah. planners have got a very different ideas about how to approach it, haven't they? Yeah, I think also that the government's uh, FASIA requirements, which is this training and you've got to meet certain levels of qualifications – you know, a lot of older advisors that are sort of pushing into their 60s and, you know, the the requirements would have essentially sent them back to university to do a full degree or something along those lines. And they've just, you know, hung up the boots and, and you know, quit, essentially sold their books or closed it down. Yeah, they've just decided that it's all too hard for them at that, um, at that particular age group. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to be talking ETFs, and eInvest is an ETF provider, and of course, you're not providing any kind of financial advice here, no, are you? It's important to just state that up front. Thank you, Phil. Um, it's, uh, it's general advice only. Uh, we're not giving you advice. If you want advice, please go and find a financial advisor. Um, so what we're having today is just a general discussion. 
Yep, don't listen to us yep. on anything. <laughs> and please have a look at the PDS, the product disclosure statement of any fund that you're considering buying, which you can find at our website, which is einvest.com.au. Okay, so let's talk about indexes, because as far as ETFs go, indexes or indices, I'm not sure exactly what the right term is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. either, More correctly. Either. Yeah, either. yeah. Well, I mean, perhaps I can tell you a bit about my background, uh, yeah. where I worked at uh, MSCI for uh, around about 13 years, I suppose. Joined them in London, moved out to Sydney with them, where I'm from originally, and spent yeah, a decade or so doing uh, the index business here. A lot of my job, obviously, was selling to ETF providers and getting them to use our indices as the basis of their ETF. And I guess during that time, I really saw the the explosion of passive investing, and uh, we were a big part of that uh, at the index company, MSCI. And it wasn't just the large standard market cap indices that we had, which you know, if you want me to explain that a little further, but they've also released a lot of thematic indices these days. So equality, minimum volatility, and other types of indices. So it's, it's not just your standard vanilla index anymore. There are many, many different types of indices. MSCI, yep. that's the mother of all indices really, isn't it? That's the big international one. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was so you can track, track an index of every market in the world via the MSCI, can't you? That's right. Or so it's the, known as the MISCI? Yeah, MISCI is the, yeah. a lot of people pronounce it that way. It originally stood for Morgan Stanley Capital International. It was spun out of Morgan Stanley, but now it just stands for MCI. So I just wanted to break down yeah. some of the terminology here because it's very easy to slip into jargon, but this is an organisation that creates indexes. That's right. That's right. So it produces- someone has to someone has to actually make an index. That's right. Yeah. So you'd, you'd have heard of S and P, of course. We're going to talk about them. FTSE is another one. Stocks is another one. Uh, Dow Jones, which is now owned by S and P, ASX two hundred. ASX two hundred is produced by S and P. So someone needs to sit down and calculate these indices every day, and they need to make a judgment about what stocks go into the index as well. And they've got a very public and well-defined methodology. So in the ASX two hundred case, it's simply the top two hundred stocks. Uh, in in Australia by market capitalization, by how big they are. Now, there are certain rules with the index as well. So they rebalance these things generally four times a year. But what you don't want is that number 200 stock dropping to 201 and then back to 199 and then coming in, out, in, out of the index. So they have what's called buffer zones and they generally widen it out to the 220th stock or the 180th stock in order to fall out of the index or come into the index respectively. So, so it's not a hard relegation yeah, like that's Premier right. League football. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a little bit of art to these things, um, mm. but generally they try to have a methodology that is very transparent so that people can understand you know, how this index works. And of course, that means people can generally tell what stock is going to go into the index and what stock is going to come out of the index as well. Now, with that, you have what's called an index effect in that if everyone knows that a stock is going to be put into the index, what they can mean is that a lot of money is going to have to buy into that stock because it will be part of an index that is replicated by a whole lot of passive funds and things like exchange traded funds or ETFs. So if a stock goes into the ASX 200 index and you own an ETF that tracks the ASX 200, then your 
ETF is going to have to put some of that stock into its portfolio so that it reflects the index. And this happened with Afterpay, didn't it? Uh, Afterpay was in the index. It's moved up very rapidly because yeah. of its when did it. When did it actually enter the ASX 200? I don't know off the top of my head, but it's a fairly new company. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's so over the last couple of years, it would have over the last couple of years blasted yeah. its way into the yeah, ASX that's right. 200. Yeah, and I suppose Afterpay is a more traditional one. I mean, it has moved very rapidly up, but it came in as a small cap stock moved into the mid cap index, then became a large cap and, you know, progressed up that way. But um, in the case of Tesla and the S&P 500 in the US, it's been a very different situation because it's been outside of the S&P 500 and very rapidly risen in price. So it's become a very large stock. In fact, the largest stock outside of the S&P 500. And that hasn't happened before. They haven't had a stock this big sitting outside of the index because normally it would have come in much lower. It would have been the 400th you know, stock or 450th stock or something, even if its price was going up. Whereas Tesla now is... Uh, well, I don't know exactly where it sits, but it's going to be a sort of a top 30 or 40 stock. Look, just before we get on to Tesla, I want to go over some more of the basics. Yeah. So with a passive ETF, so we'll give, say, the ASX 200 as an example, a passive ETF, how does that work? What's it doing? Yeah, very simply, uh, it's building a portfolio of stocks that mirrors the index that it's tracking. So if BHP is 10% of uh, the index, then it will be 10% of the portfolio that this ETF holds. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's essentially just what it does. Now, I suppose I'd bring it back to a point that indexing was designed to measure the market. And it does that very well in both equities and fixed income indices as well. Uh, and these things were very much designed just to measure the market so that you could analyze the performance, not only of markets, you could also tell the size of various sectors and so on, but you could also benchmark fund managers. So a fund manager would say that, you know, I'm really good at picking stocks. Why don't you invest your money with me? And the way that you judge them is to compare them to the index. Did they beat the index? If not, well, why not? And you need to you know, understand what drives the returns of those fund managers and the benchmark can really help you to understand that. But in the process, I suppose, of you know the last decade or just a little more, what people realized was that if you just passively track an index, and of course you can do that with very low fees because it's not hard to replicate a portfolio of, an, of a published index. And so like a passive ETF, they're yeah, very, passive ETF. very, very low very management simple, fees. Aren't very they? low yeah. management fees. You know, yeah. In Australia, you can find them for under 10 basis points. Mm-hmm. But what started happening was that people realized that just replicating that index with very low fees was actually a pretty good way to invest. And so more and more money started pouring into the passive fund industries, you know, a lot of it through exchange traded funds, but you can also buy passive funds that are, you know, your superannuation fund might run them or big institutions can hand over big chunks of money to a big fund manager like a BlackRock or something and say, just track the S&P 500 with that. They don't need to buy an ETF. They get their own account run by a big investment company. And so people realized that this is a really good way to invest and more and more money started pouring into it to the point now where in the US, more than 40% of stocks are actually held by passive fund trackers, by ETFs or um, passive, you know, other types of passive funds. And so we're getting to the point now where instead of just measuring the market, the index has become the market to a certain extent. And so any changes that 
uh, made to the index has this enormous effect on the stocks that are coming in or out of that index because the, the, the passive fund industry has just become so big. Now, people have realized this theoretically that at some point you can't go all passive. You know, at some point it has to stop. You can't be 100% passive. And the reason for that is there would be no price discovery. Essentially, prices on stocks are discovered because someone thinks it's not worth this much money, so they're going to sell it. And then someone else thinks, actually, I think that's worth that, and they are going to buy it. And so a trade happens in the middle, and you've discovered a price. Whereas with an ETF, um, if you're just buying into the passive market, and also as well, what's also been happening is money has been coming out of active management and going into passive management. So all this money flowing into passive means that the ETFs are just buying whatever stocks are in the index, no matter what the price. So Afterpay is a great example that you raised before. Afterpay's risen very, very quickly. It's now a $30 billion market cap stock. And if you were looking at that as an active investor, you might be, oh, you know, hang on a second, maybe this thing's a little overdone here. And I might sit on the sidelines for a while to see where this thing goes. But if you're buying an ETF, you're buying into Afterpay at that price today. So you buy an ETF, the ETF then goes out and buys all of the stocks according to how they're ranked in the index. And guess what? Afterpay is ranked pretty highly in the index at a very high multi- you know, valuation multiple at the moment. And that's what you're buying. Now, if you had have owned that ETF um, from the beginning when Afterpay came into it, you would have ridden that Afterpay uh, wave. You know, so you've done very well out of that. But what I do note is that if you're coming into the ETF now, you're buying in at that price. And that's part of the, the danger, I suppose, of uh, where passive investing is going. It's become so big that um, the, the, the money flowing into it is buying these stocks at any price just simply because they're ranked at that level in the index. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. And maybe if I could, you know, sort of bring Tesla up at this point with the S&P 500. Yep. So, oh, you're itching to, to yeah, bring Tesla, well, Tesla up? Yeah, because uh, I, I think it's just such a great story. It really shows and up. Th- this is reflected in your article as well. Which yeah, we'll, that's right. We'll link to on the um, the blog post as yeah. well, so we can see more in depth about what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, thanks. Please. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is where things start to get a little bit funky, I suppose, with with the index and what's happening. So, as I said, Tesla is now a very large stock. It's worth more than the next four biggest car makers combined, over $400 billion in market capitalization. It produces less than 400,000 cars a year compared to those four car makers that produce more than 25 million cars a year and make enormous profits on that. Tesla makes a tiny little profit and produces about 400,000 cars a year, and it's the biggest car company in the world by far by market capitalization. So again, you might sit on the sidelines with that one and think, "Uh, maybe not Tesla right now, but if you buy an S&P 500 ETF, then at some point Tesla 
might come into the S&P 500. There's no guarantees on this, but given the methodology of the index, it meets the criteria to be an index member. Its current market capitalization would put it at around about 1% of the S&P 500 index. Well, guess what? There's about $11 trillion that tracks the S&P 500 index one way or another. At least half of that is passive, which means at least around five or five and a half trillion dollars of money. If Tesla goes into the index, Tesla has to be 1% of the portfolio of that $5 trillion. Now, that indicates buying of more than $50 billion worth of Tesla stock. And that could create a surge in demand for Tesla beyond what we've seen so far that's already driven it to these stratospheric levels. So it becomes a snowball effect, is that? It could well. It yeah. could well. And the other thing that we saw is that when S&P passed over Tesla at its last index review, Tesla's market capitalization fell by $80 billion in one day. Now, that was roughly at the time about the combined market cap of ANZ and NAB. Now, Tesla's production hadn't changed a bit. Uh, its company hadn't changed. Its CEO was still running it. Nothing had changed. The only thing that changed is that Tesla wasn't put into the index, and it fell by $80 billion in market capitalization. Now, S&P has just kind of kicked the can down the road on this one a little bit because they've said that it wasn't going in, but they didn't say anything else. They just didn't say anything about Tesla. But everyone knows that it still qualifies to go into the index so long as it keeps its profitability up uh, and, you know, given its its market capitalization. So S&P are probably going to have to put it into the index at some point. People know that. And guess what? It's back up and it's, it's regained all of that value that it dropped. Some of that, I have to assume, is on the expectation that it's going to wind up in the S&P 500, and that's going to create a lot of demand for the stock. I guess the, the point of all this is that it's a bit weird that something that's designed to measure the market is now influencing the price of some stocks so much and distorting these, these values so much that it's becoming almost a circularity now where you know it, it, it's so big that the thing it's measuring is changing fundamentally because of the act of measurement, because it's attracted so much money into passive investing that now it's, it's starting to distort prices. I guess we're close to those levels that everyone said that, you know, I can't ever go above, well, I don't know, maybe 50% or, or, or higher. Well, guess what? We're close to that now, at least in the US. Australia's further behind, and so we're not, you know, having these issues to the same extent that uh, the US is, uh, but we're heading in the same direction. People think that passive investing is almost risk-free, but there is not. It's not, is it? There is a lot of risk involved in that as the market goes up, it'll go up, but it can go down with the market as well. There's nothing to protect um, that the, an ETF reflecting what the market is doing at any particular point in time. Not if you're in a, an index tracking ETF. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, the risk you're taking on is the overall market risk. Um, you are buying into the share market uh, at the levels that the share market is currently trading across those 200 stocks if you're buying a top 200 ETF. Uh, and yes, that you are exposed to the equity market. So if there's another crash, then yeah, guess what? Your portfolio is going down in value uh, as everyone else's is. Um, now, there are different ETFs that you can buy in different segments that uh, may 
offer you some diversification. Uh, and you know that way you can use ETFs to build a portfolio of different asset classes uh, that could essentially de-risk your portfolio somewhat. That's right, because people don't understand that there's other asset classes. You don't have to be just in the share market. Actually, in our previous episode, we had Graham Hand, and he talked about an ETF portfolio that tracked the future fund. So... Really, you've got um, you've got an allocation in cash. You've got an allocation in um, Australian shares, international shares, real estate, and uh, infrastructure, and bonds as well. Yep. And these are all different kinds of asset classes, aren't mm, they? Mm, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, an ETF can essentially be structured to buy any type of asset. Um, but what's unique about it is that it trades in real time on the exchange. So you can have ETFs made up of bonds like you know, some of the ones we have, like Ecore and Emacs. Uh, you can have ETFs made out of uh, small cap uh, equities um, or large cap companies. There's all different flavors of, of ETFs. Uh, a remarkable statistic that I uh, like to quote sometimes is there's now more indices than there are stocks trading in the world. Uh, there's so many different you know flavors of index that you can actually put together, um, and there's I think more than seven thousand ETFs trading around the world. So there's a huge selection of these things. They cover all asset classes, and you can make you know, build a great portfolio uh, out of just using ETFs. Um, but I guess the question is, do you want to be all passive? Uh, and that's fine, uh, but. What we would point out is that there are areas where passive doesn't make as much sense as going active and also other areas where passive is becoming so big and the S&P 500 example I gave before is that it can start to distort the market somewhat as well. Why do you call it the soft dictatorship of the index? What's that actually mean? What's behind that? Yeah, well, I guess what I was getting at... the. Uh, you put it into two categories, I guess. There's the hard dictatorship of the index, and that's the passive funds. They have to buy what's in the index. They've got no choice. So if a stock's going into the index, it's going into that portfolio, and that's that. No matter what the price, they're, they're literally price takers. Uh, they just buy it wherever it uh, is trading at the time. The soft dictatorship part's a bit different because so many actively or active managers uh, in the US are benchmarked to the S&P 500. And so they're performance fees, they're going to get paid if they beat the index. So let's use Tesla as an example. So they may not like Tesla and they may not be into the automotive sector. They think that they don't want to own any you know, car companies or anything like that. But guess what? If Tesla goes into the index, it's 1% of what they're being judged against. And let's say Tesla doubles in price again. It's happened three times in the last year. So let's just say you know, that it happens again. Well, if they're not holding Tesla, that means they've got a 1% performance drag compared to the index, simply because they weren't holding Tesla. Tesla's 1% of the index, doubles in price, they weren't holding it. They've got to make up that 1% from somewhere else. So the soft dictatorship part, I guess, was just alluding to the fact that just because it's in the index, these active managers have to take notice notice of it they have to watch it they have to make a decision as to whether they want to own it or not if not that's still a risk for them uh, because it could you know have fantastic performance and they missed out on that uh, and if they feel that because of its weight in the index they need to own some of it 
Well, again, you know, they could be forced into buying some of it at these very elevated levels of where it's trading. So that's the soft dictatorship part is that the index itself has become so important, not just as a, a portfolio construction tool for all the passive funds, but as a benchmark for all of the active funds that they now are very aware of what's in the index and what's not in the index. And that influences the decisions they make as to which stocks they buy and you know, which they don't hold as well. Active funds can be managed funds and ETFs as well. That's right. So uh, there's, there's, there's a difference in definition between those two, but it's basically where people are uh, paid to choose what, what stocks they think are going to outperform others. Yeah, that's right. So uh, an active ETF is essentially a managed fund that's been wrapped in an ETF and starts... Container, yeah. Yeah, a container and, and is uh, put on the exchange to, to trade in real time. Um, so the key difference, obviously, passive has to track the index. It has to reflect the index, whereas active, they can buy any stock that they want and build any portfolio that they want. There are some constraints, obviously. People sometimes say that we don't want you holding more than 10% cash or you can't have more than X percent of the portfolio in one stock and so on. There are some risk controls, but generally the managers are free to buy and sell whatever stocks that they want. And that, that's effectively what active management is. And so what you're saying now is that active managers, because of the soft dictatorship of the index, are actually forced into purchases that they may not normally be looking for? Well, yeah, that's right. Um, the fact that um, the index itself, I, I suppose it, we could talk about the nature of indices themselves a little bit, that they tend to be very top-heavy. So, you know, your top 10 stocks in the case of the S&P 500 account for 30% of the index you know, weight. Um MSCI is a little lower. S&P 200 here is you know, about 40%. It's even more concentrated. Now, if you're a fund manager and uh, you're trying to beat the index, let's say the big four banks, for example, are you going to have a position in the big four banks? Well, almost certainly yes, because if something happens to the banks, uh, let's say they have a big run-up in value and you're not holding them, well, it's going to be tough for you to beat the index. And... Uh, you know, so there's a bit of herding, I suppose, that goes on uh, in that a lot of active managers feel that they have to hold a certain weight of stocks in their portfolio, whether it's exposures to certain sectors or even certain stocks themselves, because they don't want to risk falling too far behind the index. So I think there is a lot of that that goes on. And getting back to small caps, a lot of listeners are interested in more of the small cap companies because they have realised that this is where a lot of the action is taking place and where big gains are going to be made because there are going to be some winners. There's going to be a lot of a lot of losers in this space, but um, I think a lot of winners come from there as well. Well, look, every large cap company started out as a small cap, so um, they uh, there is a lot of opportunity in small caps. Uh, that's one of the reasons why IMPQ is an actively managed small cap ETF is because um, we think that uh, small caps is an area that needs careful uh, consideration. There's a lot of speculative companies in the small cap index. They all just get put in the index because they're listed. They have to be in the index. Uh, but uh, a lot of them don't warrant uh, investor capital. Uh, and we think we've got a team that can sniff those ones out and put together a portfolio of stocks that uh, can beat the, the small cap index, which is what it's been doing. Because it's, um, it's difficult as well, because sometimes some of these companies don't even have any revenue yet. And they can move just on 
some announcement from the government and yeah uh that's exactly right i mean there there's some wild swings in the small cap space mm-hmm. i i guess as you sort of go up the scale a little bit um you know things tend to become a little bit more uh traditional in that you know valuations are somewhat based on actual earnings and and things like that but in the small cap market you can have some very speculative uh uh plays um as you said companies without revenues or profits or anything like that that are worth billions of dollars because investors are making a bet on the future uh so yeah very speculative in that space compared fact, to yeah, sort of more traditional larger yeah in fact one of the um the examples recently and of course this is no recommendation to buy this one but we had uh, the chief technical officer from Hazer on HZR pre revenue company they're testing hydrogen uh, production and of course the government came out with their renewables plan a few weeks ago and it was all about um, part of it was hydrogen and putting money in of course their share prices gone through the roof since then and that happens quite a bit doesn't it it does yeah i mean um that that's the sort of uh area you're dealing with with small caps is that you can get big surprises like that and you know some announcements can you know, literally change the value of a company by uh, some multiples. Like you can get, you're never going to get, you know, uh, an NAB or a CBA tripling in price over a short Mm. period of time, but it can happen in the small cap space fairly frequently. I mean, the trick, of course, is to find those stocks that are going to do that and avoid all of the other ones. Um, But yeah, that's that's where you can find some some very, um, you know, very rapid uh, returns. Is there anything else you wanted to add about those articles and the points that you are making in those articles? I guess the point that the articles were addressing was that the passive investing phenomena has come so far now that we're approaching a point where funky things are starting to happen. And Tesla is a prime example of that. It's it's, it's become a huge stock very quickly. Uh, The index trackers are going to have to put Tesla in their portfolio if it goes into the index. And the current valuation levels of Tesla are wild. I mean, it's, you know, worth over $400 billion and by far the largest car company in the world. So if it goes into the index, all those passive funds are going to be buying lots and lots of Tesla stock. And the, the point is that the, the act of measuring the market, which indices were originally designed to do, has now affected the market itself because passive investing has become so big that the indices themselves don't just measure the market anymore. They've become the market themselves. And so they're so important now when a stock comes into or falls out of the index, there's so much trading that goes on around that, that that's really starting to affect pricing uh, with uh, with you know, many stocks simply because of their index membership. Is anyone actually going and picking stocks the old-fashioned way? Yeah. <laughs> there must be someone doing that. Yeah, there's still a few people around that do that. And uh, I think it's very important. I mean, look... I guess with passive investing, the argument has long been that if passive gets so big, that creates opportunity for active managers because if passive funds just have to blindly follow the index, then that gives active managers the opportunity to identify some of these overvalued stocks and sell them or look for undervalued stocks that aren't in the index or not represented in, in, in the indices and buy them. Uh, I guess the problem with that has been that there's just so much money going into passive that... Um, 
it's created a momentum effect with a lot of the index members. Um, you know, the, the, the passive funds just have to buy these stocks no matter what their price. And that means that the active managers have been getting burnt a little bit because, you know, they haven't been able to compete, I suppose, with this wall of money that's, that's flowing into passive. But there should be an opportunity. And as passive continues to grow, it increases that opportunity for active managers to actually get in there and add value um, by picking stocks. Now, e-invest is all active management, isn't it? That's correct, yeah. Yep. We're only launching ETFs where we think active management makes sense. You think it can do better than the passive guys, huh? Yeah, well, <laughs> we think so. Look, our small cap fund certainly has, uh, IMPQ, mm-hmm. and uh, our fixed income funds, eCore and Emax, are performing uh, very well, and they just provide a very safe, steady income stream in, you know, in that fixed income space. And our equity income fund is, you know, I think it was the high ceiling equity income fund last year on the ASX. So to find out more information, we've got a special URL set up, haven't we? Yeah, einvest.com.au forward slash SFB Tamas, T-A-M-A-S. T-A-M-A-S. Tamas, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. The company and or guest has contributed to the costs associated with producing this episode of Shares for Beginners. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greekalicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.